If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we make our way through this uh, wonderful epistle to those Christians in Asia Minor. I've been reading this passage, I started reading about three weeks ago when I went on vacation. It's a funny thing about studying God's Word that as you begin to spend time in it, uh, understanding the theme in, in Mike Rush, and we've all sung about this morning, this idea of submitting to authorities. When you begin to uh, cope with that, it seems like at every turn in your routine, your daily routine, you are faced with some form of submission. So I had a chance over the past three weeks just to see how I did in that area. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. Got me thinking about why it is so difficult to uh, submit to those that are in authority over us. So I came up with Dilbert's top ten list of why we should not submit to others. Number ten, slavery officially ended in 1865, but somebody forgot to tell my boss. Number nine, it's hard to submit when everyone else has been promoted beyond their competence level. If everyone else would submit as they should, then I would not have to. Number seven. By the way, some of the staff helped me with these. You can see what kind of rebels I work with. Number seven. Never submit to anyone who has an IQ less than 200. Well, folks, see you later. Number six. Submission. Isn't that what they do in the military? Last time I, I checked, I was still dressed in civvies. Then number five. And we hear this all the time. And you can fill in the blank. It's just not fair. It's just not right. Somebody has violated my constitutional privileges. We live in such a, a community of litigation today that whenever somebody violates our special rights, we feel that we need to hire an attorney. Matter of fact, I, I read the other day where somebody actually did this, hired an attorney to sue their neighbor because their neighbor's apple tree branch leaned over their fence and was dropping apples into their yard instead of just visiting with that person or possibly making applesauce, I don't know. Now, we've had fun with the first six of these, but I, I decided that there really are some more serious reasons why we do not submit. Uh, reasons that I think often uh, are very profound, yet sometimes subtle. Submission threatens my security. And I believe that the reason it threatens my security is because I am no longer in control of the situation. Number three, submission feels demeaning. Many of us want to believe that we really can think for ourselves. And when we're told to do something that maybe we didn't think of or a, a, a different way of doing something, it can feel demeaning at times, even though it does not have to. Number two, submission can be painful because when we give up our rights, when we lose control, then somebody can really ask us to do something. They can abuse that right that they have over us, can't they? We've seen this, and it's very painful in the lives of couples that we counsel where one of the other spouses is very abusive, whether it be verbally or physically, whatever. But the number one reason, and I uh, wish I had a drum roll right now because... Uh, Submission, it goes against all of our natural inclinations. It does, doesn't it, folks? 
it's just the toughest thing we do because it's always hard to uh, compromise and humbly submit to somebody or some law that we just flat out don't agree with. Well, no matter what a person tells us, this practice of submission, I believe, is hard business. It's hard work. Don Pettinger, last week at staff meeting, as we were kicking around this top ten list, Don asked a question that I believe was very profound. He said, is submission really yielding to someone when we agree with them? Think about that for a minute. You see, if we agree with a, a directive, with a decision that somebody makes on our behalf, are we not simply giving our approval? If you really want to test whether you and I are submissive, then the test, the true test, is when somebody asks us to do something that we really think is not right, is not in the best interest of who we are as people. Uh, the word submit is an interesting word. It actually comes from a military term. Uh, hupotasso is the Greek word. It's, a, it's comprised really of two words. Tasso meaning to appoint, to order, to arrange. And hupo, uh, to place under or to uh, be subordinate to somebody else or some uh, directive. Simply put, it means to live under the order. To live under the order of someone's uh, decision-making policies, the different laws. And uh, in the context of the New Testament, what we see with this definition is that submission can occur whether we uh, uh, agree or not. Uh, submission is easy when we have gentle parents when we're growing up. Submission is easy uh, when we have spouses who are fair and equitable and loving and kind. Submission is easy when our employers are wise and servant-oriented employers. But when these same group of people, parents, employers, spouses, colleagues, whomever they might be, when these same people misuse their position of authority, possibly uh, through victimization, through abuse, then it becomes very difficult for you and I to submit, doesn't it? Now, if you've ever had uh, an employer, a spouse that has treated you like this, uh, folks, let me just tell you that you are in great biblical company. Take, for example, the life of David. King David, at a very young age, kills Goliath, where no other Israelite, not even the king himself, would go out and do battle with Goliath. David later routs the Philistines. His popularity begins to increase and grow. So popular that they write a song about David. Saul has slain his thousand, but David has killed his ten thousands. Now this popular song uh, began to uh, increase the rage and the, the revenge that Saul began to have towards David. And for almost 10 years, David literally ran for his life, never knowing if he could trust Saul or not. David didn't deserve this, did he? David even had opportunities to behead and dethrone King Saul. Uh, while Saul was sleeping, he could have taken his sword and, and taken the man's life. But David understood this principle of submission. Uh, much like the other biblical characters, uh, such as Esau such as Job, such as Joseph, when his brothers put him uh, at the hands of his enemy. So somehow these great characters in the scriptures 
are men and women who understood what it means to be submissive. And that's what Peter writes about to his audience to help us understand this whole concept that is very difficult. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the theme in chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, is our relationship, the church's relationship, to governing bodies or authorities. In other words, how is it that you and I should respond to the authorities, the governing authorities over us? In two weeks, next week we get to hear from Dan Brown, which is going to be exciting. But in two weeks, Jackson's going to come and talk to us about a very difficult passage in chapter 3, and that is our submissive role to one another as husbands and wives. You won't want to miss that. What I've done this morning is I've broken down this passage into four sections. Because I believe that submission is so difficult for us, in verses uh, 13 through 14, I believe that, that Peter wants us to have a proper perspective. We need a point of reference. We need a godly reference perspective uh, to accomplish this commandment that I think is, is tough for us daily. Uh, the second section is, is really one verse, is that our Lord teaches us through Peter that we also need to have a purpose. We need to have a reason for why we are submissive. If there's no reason, why do it? What's it going to accomplish? Then in verses 16 through 21a, uh, Peter gives us a blueprint. He gives us a plan in how we can carry out and live out this submissive lifestyle. And then finally, in verses 21a through the end of this chapter, uh, Peter gives us the foundation. And the foundation is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate example of how you and I can sustain this attitude of a submissive heart. Well, let's look first at uh, the proper perspective in verses 13 and 14. Peter begins by saying, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now, it's important to understand the historical context of this command. Uh, Peter's readers were governed by the Roman Empire, which was not a benevolent monarchy. It was a dictatorship ruled by uh, uh, Nero, who was a demagogue. It was ruled uh, by a man who was very notorious and cruel towards Christians. Many of the, uh, the people, people that Peter was writing to had been under this persecution of the Roman government. The bodies of friends, loved ones, had uh, shed their blood in the Roman Colosseums, in that sand, because of their faith in Christ. They had been the target of some of the grossest kinds of mistreatment that any government, even up to this time, has ever seen. And so I believe it's very fitting that Peter addresses uh, such uh, the subject of unfair treatment that the people in Asia Minor had encountered. The question that these Christians, just as if we were put in their place in their shoes would have asked is should we rise up in rebellion should we take up arms and resist such a government and peter's answer is a resounding no in the midst of all this peter has the audacity to say submit well why why should we submit well first of all god does not promote anarchy jesus tells us to give to Caesar, to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to give to God what belongs to, to him. Uh, Paul supports this notion when he says, uh, and he exhorts us, to pray for those who are in authority over us, to pray for our enemies. 
Nowhere in Scripture is there is this idea of overt insurrection taught or recommended. The believer was not put on this earth uh, to overthrow governments, but to establish in the human heart a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom that comes from God. So what Peter does is he reminds us in verse 13 that to have a godly perspective in, in, in submission, he tells us to submit. Why? For the Lord's sake. You see that phrase right there? We don't submit to parents for their sake. We don't submit to employers or our colleagues for their sake or to our spouse necessarily for their sake. We submit for the Lord's sake. And I believe what Peter has in mind here is if we really believe that God is for us, that God is good, that he uh, loves us and can care for us, what real everlasting injury or harm can ever touch us when we submit to others, even though the people that may cause us harm, intend it for harm, God can protect us. Turn with me to Psalm 62. This has become a, a, a very favorite psalm of mine over the last several years. I stumbled on it uh, in one of those moments that St. John of the Cross calls a dark night of the soul. And since reading this passage, it has brought great encouragement to my soul. I'm only going to read part of this in verses 1 and 2. Now, David wrote this. David had been under attack from people. And he says, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken, no matter what men or women do to me. Now jump down to verse 11. This puzzled me years ago when I first read this. But David ends this by saying, One thing God has spoken. Two things have I heard. That you, O God, are strong. And that you, O Lord, are loving. The reason I was puzzled is I began to ask myself, what was the one thing that God had spoken? Well, it was what David is teaching in verses 1 and 2. What is it that God has spoken? That God is trustworthy. That he can take care of us. That he is our fortress. He is the place that we can go to find rest. He's a place where we find true salvation. And then David says, what are the two things that I have heard? Well, how is it that we can trust God? Well, one, because God is strong. That means he's capable. He's got the ability to take care of Dennis, no matter what other people throw at me, no matter how they slander my name or slander Christ's name. He is big enough to do it. And secondly, he says, O oh Lord, that you are loving. He's kind. He's merciful. He's good. He loves us. He's strong enough. And he is the one that we go to as a fortress. This past week, a week and a half ago, uh, Greg Williamson lost his life, his wife, Julie. I called Greg just a couple of days ago to see how the family was doing. And Greg, it's just amazing how God's spirit is continuing to hold that man up and give him strength for his children. And Greg reminded me that at the memorial service, many of you were here for that, how Mike Nielsen kept referring to this principle that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardships and heartache, God is good. God is good. God is good. Just what David says in Psalm 62. 
And, and uh, Greg was telling me that they've been debating on, on what to do in terms of a uh, headstone, kind of a memorial for Julie. Would they put in loving memory of a great mom? And Julie was, if you knew her and knew how she ministered to her family. What an awesome saint. Then he thought about just put in loving memory. Uh, different things came to his mind. But he said, Dennis, what I've concluded is what we're going to put on that headstone is God is good. And see, that's the perspective that Greg has about life. He's had to submit himself to the death of his wife. He's had to submit himself to a decision that God allowed to take place. And I believe that's what Peter's drawing our attention to here in verse 13. That's the perspective that Peter wants us to have. We submit to others for the Lord's sake because he is good and he is trustworthy. And he has a purpose and a plan. And that leads us to our next section in verses 15. Notice how he begins this verse. He says, For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Peter explains to us that that the reason we submit and do good is because it is God's will. You know, for years I worked with high schoolers, and one of the exciting things that ever happened in that ministry is that when young people, teenagers, came to Christ, they had lots of questions, and one of their biggest questions was, Dennis, how do I know what God's will is for my life? And oftentimes it occurred to them in the midst of a dating relationship, should I date or not date this person? Oftentimes it was after they graduated, should I go to Westmont College in Santa Barbara or University of Idaho in Moscow? And they would come to me and ask me these questions, how do I know God's will? And I would remind them that, well, some of these questions, you know, you just can't turn to Leviticus and find out who it is you're supposed to marry. Um, But here is an example where it is black and white, very clear what God's will is. And I keep reminding students that many times throughout the scriptures, God lays it out for us. And, and this is what God has for us, to be submissive and to do good because it is God's will. That is his plan. That is his purpose. And Peter reminds us that if we do what he commands us to do, that it oftentimes will end in a positive result. Now, we may not see that in our lifetime, will we? But the positive result, result is that God silences the ignorant talk of foolish men. Now, what does Peter mean by this silencing idea? The Greek word to, uh, to silence has the idea of to close the mouth with a muzzle. Uh, my grandfather uh, lived to be 92 years old, and he was a farmer and rancher. And he got his beginning in, in the farming industry in Canada, where he homesteaded. I still remember a photo that I saw of him standing with my grandmother by a sod-roofed house. So when they farmed years and years ago, they would take draft horses. uh, They would uh, uh, plow up the ground with these these horses, pulling the machinery. They would seed the soil. Then the the wheat would grow, and then they would would mow these uh, these crops with a uh, draft horse pull-drawn mower, cart. And my dad ended up working for my grandfather, which is how he met my mother. And he would often tell me that the reason they would muzzle, let's say a horse or an ox, would be uh, to keep that animal from biting or from eating. And so what Paul does, or what Peter does here using this metaphor of muzzling somebody is 
he, uh, that it silences that person. It keeps that animal from using its mouth. As I look around, I, I recognize many of you as parents of teenagers, adolescents, and you're probably thinking, it'd be nice to use some of those muzzlers today. But uh, you see, what was going on in the first century with these Christians in Asia Minor, Minor is that all kinds of, of slanderous rumors were being spoken about the church. Such things as uh, they have become a secret sect, that they are following another kingdom and not the Roman kingdom, that they even entrust their lives to another god and not to Caesar, that maybe it's possible that this group of Christians might be subversive and want to overthrow our government. And so this paranoia was rampant, and it not only was amongst the, the, uh, the, the, the local folks, but it, it came clear up into the political uh, realm of Nero. Uh, so to muzzle these rumors that the government was having towards the church, Peter encourages this kind of submission to the powers that be. Now translated into today's terms, it would be something like this. When we have people in our lives like that rascal Nero who are abusive and petulant, they're ill-tempered, and they uh, ask you to do things or demand things of you, uh, what would it look like? Well, Peter says you respond to them in submission by good deeds. You entrust yourselves to God and you demonstrate respect. Now, if we do that, just as the Christians did back in that first century, what happens to the people that are trying to, uh, to rule over you. Well, it diffuses them, doesn't it? It baffles them. Uh, they are flabbergasted. And why? It's because they cannot understand the kindness that you are demonstrating to them. This is the same attitude that we're going to see in just a few moments that Christ demonstrated when they put him on a cross. I have a friend in Montana who's been the, the Montana State Prison Chaplain for years there. Bill Wolters is his name. And... Uh, you have to understand about something about working within a prison uh, a con confine. And that is that uh, convicts aren't always really open to the gospel message. And so Bill oftentimes would be ridiculed and slandered because of his faith. But Bill would always say to me, Dennis, kill him with kindness. Because I worked there for a while in, within the, the prison. And I got to know Bill and he'd say, kill him with kindness. And that's what he would do through the years. He would demonstrate the kind of love that Christ has, the kind of grace. And it flabbergasted those inmates. Many of those men today have come to receive Christ, I believe, because of the grace and the mercy that was demonstrated to other Christians that come and, and visit those men. So do you want to muzzle the rumors and the slanders that people may speak against you? Well, do good. Show respect. Why? Well, because it's God's will. So we have a perspective, we have purpose, and now Peter gives us a plan, the blueprint on how to live out this, this lifestyle in verses 16 and 17. Peter says, Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God and honor the king. Peter says there are two actions here that we can put in the, in, in, into this plan. The first one is in, is in verse 16, and he says, Live as free men and don't use your freedom for, as a covering for evil. Now, Peter reminds us a very important principle that our Lord taught the disciples back in John chapter 8. 
And Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Are you submitting? If not, are you really a disciple of Christ? Tough words. Jesus goes on to say, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You want to be free? I believe our submissive attitudes are in direct correlation to how we submit to one another. Days that I'm in rebellion with my colleagues, my guess is I'm in great rebellion with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul also supports this idea in Galatians 5.13. He says, you, my brothers, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. And here that comes right back to this idea of demonstrating respect, uh, loving the people you're sitting around today who are your brothers and sisters, honoring the king. So Peter wants his brothers and sisters in Asia Minor to understand that they are ultimately free from the jurisdiction of the governing authorities over them. Uh, He wants us as believers in the United States, believers in Russia, in China, in Korea, throughout the world to understand one very important thing. He has set us free so we are not under the bondage of the authorities that rule over us. But he says, do not take this freedom as an excuse to live in chaos and insubordination. That kind of life will only hurt each one of us individually and ultimately it will hurt the church. It will give ample justification to the Roman government the people that Peter was writing to, for them to be much more uh, difficult to work with, to extend that persecution even further than they had. So Peter says Christians ought to choose to be orderly. And the second action he gives us is in verse 17. He says, live as servants of God. Well, just how is it that you and I serve one another? Well, first of all, he says, by demonstrating proper respect to everyone. I hate to admit this, but I thought it might serve as a great illustration to how I forgot this principle about two weeks ago. I'm on vacation. I'm driving through Stanley, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little weary. I've been fishing all day. Fishing's tough. You know, it's hard work, especially when you don't catch much. And so we, Judy and I stop at a little convenience store in Stanley, and I purchase a cup of coffee. They have to understand something. I was raised by a father that really demanded respect for my mother and those that were elderly, uh, and, and he demanded manners, although for those high schoolers that I have spent time with, some of those manners didn't always rub off. But I go to this convenience store, and uh, the gentleman behind the counter, uh, I would say early 30s. So I'm figuring he's had plenty of time, life experience, to know how to, to treat people that he is serving. And he's reading a book. He does not even acknowledge that I'm in the store. I go to find the coffee pots in the back, and uh, there are these little pump pots, and the ones that were out front were empty. So I'm rummaging around, kind of looking for the, the pots that are full, and I finally find them, and I happen to glance back, and he's looking at me now as if to say, what are you doing? Instead of saying, can I help you? And so my blood pressure starts to rise, see? And I finally get my coffee, and so I take my coffee, and I put it on the counter, and I expect him to say what? Thank you. Something to that effect. I mean, I am the one paying for the coffee. He says nothing. It's like he takes my money and turns around and starts reading his book. So then I give him a piece of my mind, which I can't afford to give away. <laughs> I, 
I say to him, well, thank you. And I kind of stared at him. And then it's like I turned around and walked out and Judy had to kind of really, you know, hose me down because I was livid. I thought, over a cup of coffee, what is my problem? But see, what happened, folks, is I lost perspective. I forgot about the plan that God had for me to show respect to a man that even though I didn't think he deserved it, I owed him that much. He's God's creation. Did he handle the situation right? Well, I don't believe so. Did I handle the situation as a Christian? Absolutely not. As a pastor, no. But then I have an IQ less than 200, so. <laughs> so I'm, I'm driving home, and I get back to the cabin where we were staying, and the next morning, guess what? I open up. Now I'm right back into First Peter. And I see this idea of showing respect. And it really cuts to the core because uh, that's how God wants you and I to live as servants, folks. Now, Peter goes on to say some other ways that we can demonstrate this idea of servanthood is to fear God. Now, I don't believe what he has in mind here is the reverential respect that you and I demonstrated this morning as we prayed. And thank you, Nancy, for that prayer. What a, what a wonderful way to lead us to the door, to the throne of our Father. But as we sang, as we worshiped, I don't believe that that's what Peter has in mind here, nor do I feel that he's saying that we are to fear the final judgment. If you are here today as a non-believer, you best fear it because you are going to come under the judgment of an almighty, awesome God. But if you are here as a believer this morning, and by the way, you do not have to stay a non-believer, and we can talk about that later. Uh, but if, if you are here as a believer... Uh, I don't believe that's the kind of fear that he's talking about either because none of us have anything to fear as Christians in the final judgment. I believe what Peter has in mind here is if you and I call ourselves disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, that we need to be obedient, we need to live lives that demonstrate this submissive attitude. And if we don't, it's God's right and privilege and the scriptures teach us that he will discipline and punish us. Each one of us, maybe in the, in the length of time we've had with our Lord, has seen how he's operated in our lives to convict us and move in our hearts. And finally, he says to honor the king. Do we honor the president? Or do we find ourselves making coarse jokes or jesting? Remember, the way we treat others is oftentimes a great reflection as to how we understand our Heavenly Father. I ran across this quote by Martin Luther in trying to understand what it means to be free in Christ, but yet to be submissive to others. Listen to what Martin Luther says. I don't think there's a better commentary on this one verse. He says, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. All right, you understand what that's saying? We are free in Christ. The, govern the governing bodies have no authority over us. We are subject to none. But a Christian is also a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. See the balance? When we accept the freedom, understand it, and we can move into loving others in a submissive role that I believe demonstrates the grace and love of Christ and a submissive attitude than any of the verbal words that we can communicate in trying to, to share the gospel with folks. What a great quote. Martin Luther, what a wonderful saint. So Peter provides this example uh, in verses 18 to 21 to really give it further flesh on the bones. And he says, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, 
not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it, to your credit, if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this, Peter says, you were called. Now, to understand, I believe, the full import of what Peter is saying, we must understand a little bit about this nature of slavery that was taking place in the ancient days and in the early uh, days of the church. The term slaves was a word that was frequently used for household servants. When we think of slaves, we automatically think of the slavery that came with our new world back in the 1800s, for which our Civil War was uh, primarily fought. But slavery in the first century, for, uh, for which these Christians were under, uh, differed dramatically then from what we know during the Civil War period, what took place in our country. Slavery was a very diverse institution in both the Roman and Greek worlds. Uh, in, the, in, in these two worlds, the Greek and Roman worlds, their entire e economic system uh, was anchored in this institution. Some have estimated that as many as 60 million people, especially in the more urban areas, were these household servants and slaves. In both the Roman and Greek worlds, but especially the Roman uh, world, slavery was not usually a permanent condition of one's life. Uh, rather, it was a temporary form of servanthood uh, condition on the path towards freedom. And one of the best works that I've read regarding slavery in the Greco-Roman world is by a, a gentleman by the name of S.S. Barkchi, or Barkchi, C-H-Y, or how you pronounce that. And listen to what he says. He says, Many ancient people voluntarily chose to be slaves of a Roman citizen so that upon being granted manumission, that is, to be set free from bondage, and it, it occurred either as a result from good behavior or that that slave was able to save adequately a, a savings account then they could become full citizens of Rome. He goes on to say that a slave didn't necessarily mean that you took a lower class. You were assigned a low station in life. Not all people served in, in the manual labor uh, that, that many of us have commonly done. He says that there were doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, um, bailiffs, sea captains, secretaries, overseers, they were all submitted to this idea of servant slavehood. He also goes on to say that slaves had the status and power that their, that their owners often did. So if you worked, if you were a servant slave for a powerful master, oftentimes you were given the same respect and power that your master had. He says that while most slaves were born into slavery, he said that many chose slavery because it was a better existence over the vagabond lifestyle that so many people had back in those days where they went from job to odd job just trying to live. Now, with all of that uh, going on, uh, am I saying that we should embrace slavery in the ancient world? Well, absolutely not, not at all. But I think it's important for us to understand the historical background of slavery because then we can understand why it is that Peter had the audacity to say, submit to your masters. 
You see, if it is true that slavery was the central labor force, economic force and institution in Rome, and if it's true that these men and women in Christ were, were absolutely free in Christ, then for them to submit, for them to demonstrate this respect to their masters, uh, it would uh, demonstrate an attitude, uh, again, of grace. But if they were to rise up uh, to, to bear arms and to fight against this movement, I believe that the Roman authorities would immediately and perhaps irreparably have done damage to the first century church. That's why I think Peter says that uh, slaves demonstrate respect, even to those that are harsh. Because Peter wants the Christian slave community to manifest a kind of behavior that transcends the norm of their society. Demonstrates the supernatural love and grace that only God can extend. And in so doing, the church is seen in favorable eyes. Just as when you and I demonstrate, let's say, civil disobedience, but in a respectful manner, with restraint, under the law. We can go to Washington and march. We can march here on the streets of Boise. When we do it with respect and restraint, no harm will come to us. Many legislative uh, laws have been um, enacted because Christians have taken a stand. And we've done it in a very passive, orderly manner. Martin Luther King is probably the best example of that during the Civil Rights Movement. He resisted the temptation and spoke to, to both blacks and whites to not take up arms, but to just march and to speak forth the truth. Now, Peter closes out this whole section, this chapter in verses 21 through 25, and he, and he reminds us that the foundation for this principle of submission is the person of Jesus Christ. He says, Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the great shepherd, the overseer of your souls. In the history of mankind, no one was more mistreated, misunderstood, maligned, hated, tortured than the person of Jesus Christ. Yet our Lord did not retaliate. The scriptures tell us he did not make threats to his accusers. But he left justice and judgment into the hands of his heavenly father. And Peter contends that Christians should take this example as a paradigm for your lifestyle. And for my lifestyle. So when you are slandered, do not retaliate with sharp barbs. When you suffer uh, and it's not your fault, do not threaten. Do not accuse. Instead, entrust your case to a God who judges justly. And wait. Wait patiently for your vindication. Jesus was vindicated. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is in glory. And ultimately, folks, that's what he has for you and I. So Peter tells us that if we do this, that there is a benefit. And what is the benefit? In the last verse, he says that we will return to the shepherd who is the overseer 
of our souls. What does that mean? I believe he's saying that God is our protector. goes back to Psalm 62. He is trustworthy. He watches over all of my actions. He can protect me. And what he expects from you and I is righteousness. And the righteousness is this attitude of submission. There is no other way. In a world that is preoccupied with our constitutional rights, that is preoccupied with litigation, Jesus says there is only one way. That is to be submissive and to not defend ourselves. So what difference does all this make? Well, I began with a top ten list. Had a little fun with uh, why it is we don't want to submit. Let me close with five principles uh, from, I believe, one of the greatest theologians that ever lived. And that is Jonathan Edwards, who uh, spoke regarding this passage and how we can submit in a world that is not easy to submit to. First of all, as Christians, we have a responsibility to society beyond the walls of the church, Jonathan Edwards said. What he meant by that is that our tendency oftentimes in the church is to isolate ourselves from society. We need to break down those walls and move in to the real world to speak up. Secondly, Christians should not hesitate to join forces with non-Christians in the public square to work toward common moral goals. Mark Falconer, one of our elders, is a a PR person over at Hewlett-Packard. He rubs shoulders day in and day out with non-Christians. But oftentimes, the good work that they work together is uh, regarding certain moral issues in the workplace, in the world. We need to, and I want to encourage those of you men and women that are out there doing that to continue doing that. I guess the only caution is that we need to keep in mind what biblical principles are, the, are foundational to our, our belief system and not acquiesce, not compromise those, those ideas. Number three, Christians should support their governments but be ready to criticize them when the occasion demands. And once again, we are 2,000 years removed from our brothers and sisters in Asia Minor. They did not have the freedoms that we have. They could not really march against the Roman government like you and I at times can be civil in our disobedience and demonstrate respect and restraint. But we need to stand up when we see things that are are contrary to Scripture. Number four, Christians should remember that politics is comparatively unimportant in the long run. This is where I believe many Western Christians uh, have gotten off the path on this point. By that I mean that the, the Christian's first responsibility is always to our Lord and Savior, our Master Jesus Christ. And then secondly, to the governing bodies that are over us. And finally... Christians need to be aware, be aware of national pride. And I love to sing that song, I'm Proud to Be an American. And I love that, that tune. But uh, in the history of the world, in the history of the church, there has never been a truly Christian nation. And until that happens, which I doubt, uh, we need uh, to put that national pride on the back burner and, and put our trust in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of our nation or in the kingdom of men. Now, those are just principles. On a more practical note, let me just suggest this in closing. Consider what our Lord Jesus Christ did. He was spat upon. He was ridiculed. He was falsely accused. 
And what did Jesus do? He focused on his Father. He kept entrusting himself to the God who judges righteously. And that's a good thing for you and I to do daily. So tomorrow morning, even the rest of the day, may I just suggest this to you. When you awake, start your day out. Lord, I have no idea what today is going to bring. Some of the people that I have been working with and working around have, have uh, uh, been unreasonable. They have not treated me fairly. But I am going to walk into this situation trusting you. Lord, you give me the strength to demonstrate respect. Give me the kind of love that would baffle these folks, that would silence them. So ultimately, your name can be glorified and praised. And remember Psalm 62. He is the great protector of our souls, just as First Peter says. He can take care of you no matter what people throw at you, whether it's slander, whether it's ridicule, false accusations. Father, uh, teach us what it means to humbly submit before others. And give us the balance, Lord, when it is that we should stand up and speak and when we should sit quietly and let you be our defender. Lord, we recognize that we are not to lay down uh, before men and, and, and kick the stuffings out of us. But at the same time, Father, uh, we know that submission uh, to those people that are uh, involved in our lives, whether it's our spouses, our children, our colleagues, can be very difficult for us. Teach us how you did it so that we might do it to draw men to you. Thank you for being the protector of of our souls. In Christ's name, amen.